Okay, friends, we are into the Exodus now. Last week, we took the three, no, not three, 30,000, that's the expression, the 30,000-foot view of Exodus. If you weren't here for that message, it is posted online. I encourage you to go onto our website, and uh, we're going to get it going on iTunes and all that stuff soon, which we're excited about, um, and you can listen to that message. That one lays the foundation for where we're going for the summer, and this has nothing to do with me. It is God's Word, but uh, I really like that message like last week. Um, I'm already learning a ton about the Exodus that I never picked up before. I'm already chomping at the bit to share it all with you, but I'm needing to pace myself over the summer months. It's going to be an amazing journey, but again, that introduction will really lay the foundation for where we're going uh, for the next two months. Quick recap, though, to get us on board before we go back to, down to ground level. The overview of the Exodus story is this, divine deliverance, the divine decrees, and the divine dwelling place of God. That is the basic thrust of the Exodus journey into kind of equal thirds, actually, when you look at it. First comes the divine deliverance. This is the part of the story that most of us know. If you grew up going to church and to Sunday school, if your parents sent you to the vacation Bible school, at some point you learned this part of the story and you learned it in detail. Moses and the burning bush and the take off your shoes and the plagues, you know, the hail and the boils and the blood and ah, it's, so it's a ton of fun. Well, not really ton of fun, but it's fun to tell the story. So we're all really familiar with the deliverance part. Then we get to the divine decrees, and then we're like, I know that has to do with the Ten Commandments, but if I'm honest, I can't even recite the Ten Commandments. So we are going to go into the decrees of God with a special emphasis on the commands, and we're going to come up with a really super helpful, practical way to memorize the Ten Commandments, and it's this. You have 10 fingers. You can remember 10 decrees of God. I mean, you know every word to Bohemian Rhapsody. You can remember 10 things that God tells you to do to direct your life. We're going to do this, people, and you'll be blessed by it. Then we get to the divine dwelling. And by the time you get there in the Exodus story, nobody knows anything about that. It's like the divine dwelling, a tabernacle, ten, I have no clue. Well, you're going to have a clue. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but this will become very important and meaningful because last week we went into detail about this fact that Jesus is our decoder ring to understand Exodus. Remember a Christmas story, Ralphie, little orphan Annie, the decoder ring. Jesus is our decoder ring. He helps us to understand the true message of Exodus and where it is pointing to us because Jesus is our divine deliverer. All of us need an Exodus. All of us need to be drawn from sin into forgiveness, from death into eternal life, and we have divine deliverance in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of us long to know the divine decrees of God, because we were made for him to have our, our being, our moving, our dwelling in him. And so internally, this is what we believe and affirm as the people of God. We were made for God. And there's this pull, there's this urge, there's this longing in all humanity to know 
God. And Jesus is the living word, the living decree of God to us to be in a relationship with him. Jesus is ultimately our divine dwelling place to know and be known and to become the, te the temples, the tabernacles, the dwelling place of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So all of this is pointing us toward what is revealed and what we have in and through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? All right, good. I need you on board because I can't get into the new stuff till I got you on board with where we're all, we've already been. Now, last week, we spent the whole service talking about all of this is premeditated upon the divine detour. You don't get an exodus unless you have a captivity. You don't get an exodus without an Egypt. You don't get a deliverance unless you're locked up somewhere. And all of us have experienced and are experiencing in some ways a divine detour. Um, here's, and, and, and here's where we went with that. Let me just kind of cut to the chase and we'll summarize this. The divine detour is where God is doing something in you and through you. The divine detour isn't just something that you know that you get past and you get beyond. God does something through you as he gets through to you to get somewhere else in life. He's getting you to where you need to go and he's doing something deep in you in those divine detours in life. And I imagine, and I hope you did this, if not do this this coming week. Spend some time in prayer and meditation on this story in God's word and think about how your divine detours those seasons in life, those episodes in life where you thought you were off track, ah, things fell apart with school, or oh, that relationship didn't go the way I thought it was going to go, oh, you know, my, my, I didn't get that promotion, work didn't happen, things didn't go how I thought it was going to go. I believe that through the eyes of faith now, we can always look back on those detours and can see, God, you're actually using that in a powerful way to get me to where you wanted me to go, but also that I could become the person you needed me to be. I don't know what your divine detours have been. I don't know what your divine detour is right now. But I know that God uses these things that we perceive as detours to do his deeper work in and through our lives. In my own life, I could say, and I, I won't go into a, a long explanation of this, but, you know, we've been in this wonderful experience, this journey of becoming Connections Church for, for not even a, a, a year now have we been Connections Church. But I have to tell you that there was a long season in my life where I was waiting for the breakthrough, that I was wondering what God was going to do, that I was wondering how God was going to use me. We knew we felt called to Colorado. We knew we felt called to this mission. We love it here. We, we love serving him. We love being in ministry. But we were waiting. We were wondering and now I can see so clearly how God was aligning things and what I thought was like a long detour to bring us all together at this time, at this place, for a season such as this. And so I praise God, I thank God that he uses the detours in my life, and I know he's going to use the detours in your life. Now let's go to ground level. Let's get our feet on the ground. We're going to get it into the thick of this story. We're going to pick up our reading in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to go through fifth, um, from 15 through 22. So we're going to put that on the screen. You'll be able to follow along. And let's get our feet on the ground now as we begin the deliverance. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, 
when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, and here's where it gets real, right? <laughs> it's about to get real here. Kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. There's something glaring in this text in what it's missing. There should be something that is glaringly missing from this text, and it is this. We never get Pharaoh's name. We never get the name of this Pharaoh. We never get the name of any of these Pharaohs. It's like God is telling us it doesn't matter who Pharaoh is. Pharaohs come, Pharaohs go. Some are good, some are bad. The good ones will leverage their power and their authority for justice, for kindness, for righteousness, for good works. The bad ones, of which most are, they are going to use their power to oppress. To oppress and to do works of injustice and unrighteousness over the people. But it doesn't matter, friends. It doesn't matter the pharaohs that come and go. It doesn't matter if he's good and bad. I know in the moment, I know in the season, I know it feels like nothing else is more important, but in the big picture, friends, do not worry. I have got this. In the big picture, my people, God is saying, do not worry about Pharaoh. I have got this, and I have got a plan, and I'm going to bring you, woman, you, man, you, child of mine, into this plan. Because what is amazing about this text what is startling about this text, especially when we take it in the context of an ancient document where the winners write the history and where history is usually about the men, we have two names here, the names of the midwives. We know their names, Shifra and Pua. Say that with me. Say Shifra. Say Pua. All right, that, that, that was pretty good. Here's why we need to know those names. Because God gives us those names. God gives us the names of these women who culturally were nothing. And I hate to say that, but the truth of the matter is that culturally, they were not on equal standing with the men. They were not on equal standing with the other women because they didn't even have husbands or families of their own. These are, in a sense, the lowest of the low. Your role, your job is to just help other women who are blessed with children. But God says, I want you to know their names forever. And I don't even care who Pharaoh is because our God looks not to the outside, 
but to the inside. Amen, friends? That's bad news if you're a pharaoh, but I don't think any of us are pharaohs. I wasn't born, you know, with a ticker tape parade. There is no glitz. There is no gold. There is no fanfare. There is no pomp or circumstance around my birth. But I imagine yours is the same. A lowly, humble birth, a normal person. But God says, I don't look to the outside. I look to the inside. I look to the quality and the character of these women. And I saw something I liked. And we get the insight. Know why I love Shifra and Puah? It says it twice in the text. Did you catch it? Because they feared God. It is because they feared God that God saw them and honored them and gave us their name. These women feared God more than Pharaoh. They said, Pharaoh, we know you've got the power. We know that you could squash us, you could eradicate us, you could wipe us off the map with just a a wave of, of your scepter and we'd be gone. But we fear God more than you. And so these women, these women deceive Pharaoh. They directly disobey his orders and they deceive Pharaoh. And then they lie to his face because they feared God more than him. There's a bumper sticker that I've seen on cars. Maybe you've seen it well. It says, well-behaved women rarely make history. Have you seen that bumper sticker around? That's a great bumper sticker. It's a great bumper sticker. And when you see that bumper sticker now, I want you to think of two women. I want you to think of Shifra and Pua and praise God for some women who misbehaved because they feared God more than man and the consequences of what they may reap. They feared God. And then we're going to see other women are going to follow in this. These two women, they fear God. And so they disobey And God honors and blesses them. And then God gives them families of their own. And then we're going to see that Moses' mom is going to misbehave. She's going to go against the orders of Pharaoh because she fears God and wants to honor and respect life over and above the law of man. And so she misbehaves. And then her daughter, Miriam, she misbehaves. Moses' sister, she misbehaves. And she conspires with her mom for this plan to save the boy's life. And then Pharaoh's own daughter. Get this, friends. This is so easily missed in this text. Pharaoh's own daughter, we're going to read, will disobey her own father, will disobey the law of the land to choose the law that we know of our God, which is the law of love and the law of life. Praise God for these women who misbehave, who fear God more than man. Amen, friends? Amen. If if ever there was a pastor pandering to the women in the audience, it is me at this moment right now looking for some praise from the women who say, I will fear God more than man. This, of course, begs a question, though. This begs the question, is it ever right to do wrong, to do right. Apparently it is. Apparently at times, it is right to do wrong, to do right. That is a hard ethic. And don't read anything more into this than what I'm telling you. Is this standing for all, situ- all situations at all times and every... I, I don't know, but I know this, because I'm not going to try and explain the way or come up with some tidy little interpretation for this text, but in this time, in this place, when the law said kill, it was right to disobey. It was right to do wrong, to disobey, to honor life. And that is what these women did. 
Now, please understand, don't misquote me, don't read any more into this than there is, because we know the guiding ethic and trajectory of our lives is that we as the people of God should be the best citizens. We should absolutely, hands down, be the best citizens. We should honor and respect those who are in authority. We should pray for those who are exercising power in our country and around the world. We should pay our taxes. We should be the best citizens, the best neighbors, the ones that the people look to us and say, wow, look at how they live. It is for the greater good, the greater blessing, the greater benefit of all of the people around them. We should be leading the way. But whenever the way of the land wants to promote a culture of death, and destruction of tyranny and oppression, that is when the people of God say, we must fear and honor God over the ways of the world around us. And we stand on that foundation as the church. We stand on that foundation as the people of God. Each and every one of the disciples, the follower of Jesus, they died being labeled as blasphemers because they went against the ways of religion in the land, and they died on the grounds of treason against Rome. But when called upon to deny Jesus Christ and to proclaim Caesar as Lord, they said, never, no, not going to happen. Christ is Lord. And they were called upon to kill. They said, we have already given our lives to Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, and now we live for the ethic of love and laying down our lives for the people around us. The women feared God more than men, which led them to make some very difficult decisions, which God ultimately blessed and ultimately brought about the birth of the deliverer, the freedom of the people, which continued the line that leads to Jesus and to our salvation. All of this is unfolding in this story. And then we get to chapter 2. Instead of having us read chapter 2 now so we can move through this, let me recap. The law has gone now over the land. It is not just for the midwives to try and dispose of the Hebrew boys that are being born, but this is to go out to all of the people. And we read about a family that is being formed now in chapter 2. A Levite man and a Levite woman come together and they have a child. And of course it says that they look upon the baby and he's a fine child. I don't know any parent personally. I don't know any parent who has not looked at their child and said, what a fine child. What a gift from God. What a blessing to us. They looked on this little boy and they couldn't bring themselves to obey the law of the land. And mind you, let's just pause on this just long enough to know this isn't sort of a flippant, casual, you know, recommendation. And if you so desire, kill your kids. I mean, like, no, like, like that is not how this goes down. The people are slaves. They're living in a ghetto situation. There are taskmaster, taskmasters put to rule over them. And the law of the land is to kill the babies. And they can't bear the thought. So they hide Moses. 
well, he's not named Moses yet. They hide the baby. They hide him for three months. I mean, you can hide a baby for three minutes. You can hide a baby for three hours if they're napping. Maybe you can get away with three days, but I don't think any baby is going to stay hidden much longer than three months. They do all that they can. They do all that they can to hide this baby, but at three months, they know the gig is up and something has to happen. And when we read the text, and this is where we go deeper than, again, the Sunday school lesson we teach our children, which is which is great, the VBS telling of the story. When we read between the lines of what is happening, what we begin to see here is that, is that Jochebed, Moses' mother, has a plan that she puts into action. She has faith and a plan wedded together that she's putting into action because she doesn't just toss him in the Nile as per the instructions. She makes a basket. The Hebrew actually is that she makes an ark. She makes an ark and she goes to great work to make sure it's waterproof. And, and, and we picture like the, the prince of Egypt, which is great, by the way. We picture some of the scenes that we've seen and imagine in our mind's eye. We kind of picture like, you know, like shoving off the baby like downstream. Doesn't say that. So she placed the basket with the baby in it in the reeds, caught up, positioned. It says placed there in the reeds, where she knew Pharaoh's daughter would come. Now, this is the plan, but this is where faith comes in. She doesn't know what's going to happen, what's going to unfold when Pharaoh's daughter comes. She places the basket in the reeds. She leaves. Miriam, her younger daughter, stays there. Pharaoh's daughter comes down. Her servants kind of, you can imagine them checking out the lay of the land. Are there any you know, thieves, assassins, you know, I mean, this is, you know, you picture what's happening. This is why they inspect it. And I believe as she had hoped, exactly as she hoped would happen, the basket is found. Now, this is where faith really kicks in. They could have just simply obeyed Pharaoh's command and said, oh, baby, dumped it overboard. But they see the baby. She declares it as one of these Hebrew boys. Immediately, Miriam comes running on cue. If you like, I could fetch one of the Hebrew women and they could maybe take care of the baby for you. Does that sound like a good plan? That, that sounds like a great plan. And Pharaoh's daughter goes directly against the decree of her own father. And only God, only our God can work a plan such as this. The baby goes from death to life, and not only that, Jochebed gets a blank check to raise this child through the nursing years before handing the baby back over to Pharaoh's daughter to position him to become the deliverer whom God would call him to be. Faith and a plan wedded together in action that sets the stage for Moses to become God's deliverer for God's people. And you have to love that name because we are finally given at the end of the text there in, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 10. It says that, and Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter is the one who gives the name Moses because I drew him out of the water. Every time that name was heard, there would be a remembering. He was saved. He was drawn out from death to life. He was drawn out from the Nile. He was drawn out of that water so that he might live. Every time Pharaoh's daughter called out that name, Moses, she was remembering, I drew this baby out of the water and gave 
him life. Every time Pharaoh heard that name, he was reminded, my own daughter went against my rule and decree, and now I'm raising this child in my own palace. Every time he heard that name, he would be reminded, he would be pointed towards his destiny, his calling, his role as the deliverer. The one that was drawn from the water would be the one that would draw God's people through the waters of the Red Sea and into their promise of new life and beginning. And it now begins with this baby, Moses, drawn from the water. Three quick reminders, though, before we come to our reminder and our memorial table to remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's just be reminded of three things. First, let us take from this story that fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. The midwives, Shipra and Pua, feared God more than man. The fear of God is to have awe for God. The fear of God is, is, is to have reverence for God. The fear of God is to understand that God is ruler and judge. The fear of God is to understand that God is holy and pure and perfect and can have nothing to do with sin. But instead of simply pushing all sin and brokenness away, he provides the very means for forgiveness of sins and being made right and holy and pure standing before him. This is what it means to have the fear of God. And I want to bring this up because I think this is a necessary and needed counterbalance to today's culture. As we continue in our worship, we are going to sing that we are no longer slaves to fear. Amen. We are no longer slaves to fear, but we must never forget that we must have a holy and reverent fear and awe before God's holiness. This is kind of the flip side of our culture and of our current understanding. We sing, he's a good, good father, and he is a good, good father. We know that he is for us and not against us. We know that he loves us and has a plan and a calling over our lives and those that he loves. Yes and amen. This should always be our first step forward in outreach and mission in evangelism to the world to share the good news of the life that we have in Jesus Christ. We should be charging forth with the great news that God loves us and he gave his son for us so that we could live forever with him. Yes, yes, yes. But as the people of God, as people who devote themselves then to God, let us grow and nurture a holy fear so that we may gain wisdom and understanding. A necessary and needed balancing point. Because I love my wife, but I don't worship her. I love my kids. I do not worship or fear them. I love my God. I worship my God. God alone is worthy of worship and holy reverence and fear. And that is the beginning of our wisdom as the people of God, because that's our second point. We will need wisdom to know how to navigate in this world. We will need the wisdom of God that comes through fear to know how we must navigate in this world because we have to, we can only imagine how hard a decision this would have been in this moment to go against the decree of the land, the law of the world around them, to kill these baby boys. They just couldn't do it. 
They couldn't do it because of their fear of God. They knew they had to enact some civil disobedience, right? They're going to fear God more than man. And it took wisdom to know how to navigate that path. I'm going to imagine this. At some point in your life, in the past, in the present, or in the future, at some point in your life, the fear of God, the wisdom that he will give you, the law of the land, the ways of the world around you, in your school, or at work, or in the context of our current culture, decisions are going to be made in your life, and you will need to go against the grain, to go against the flow, to maybe even go against the rule of the land, that you might fear God and honor him. But we need this holy fear and this wisdom to lead us into those seasons, which points then to the last reminder. We, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom sometimes leads us to go against the flow and against the grain. But whenever we go against the flow, against that grain, whenever we know we fight the law of the world around us, that is when we must wed together our plans and our faith. I love how Jacques Abed pulls together a plan and a faith. These are not mutually exclusive propositions, friends, to make a plan and to exercise faith. In fact, this is the way that we see God works. God has a plan of redemption that he has enacted with Abram that brings him through Isaac and J- uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Joseph and the other sons and to the Moses the deliverer that will lead to the promised land, that will lead to the line of David, that will lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. Our God is a God who makes a plan for redemption and sets it into motion. And in the midst of that plan, he invites us to put our faith and our trust in him. And we can work the same way in our lives. We can exercise faith, but put together a plan, right? And you look at, think about the plan that Jochebed had here. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you can make a plan that's like so good and so tight and seems so smart in the ways of the world that it hardly involves God, right? It's like, it's like that's just so good. Like, I don't need to pray over it. Not that we shouldn't. That's just kind of how we function sometimes. Some plans seem crazy. And all I'm going to say about this is her plan seemed crazy. <laughs> but it was the best plan that she could come up with. It was the only plan that she knew to enact. So we can imagine the faith that she had to put to see it through. So faith and planning are wedded together as God works out redemption in the world and through our lives. And so let us celebrate the plan of redemption, the plan and the faith that go hand in hand and come together and meet at this table of our Lord. So let us remember as we look ahead to what will happen in the Exodus story as it points us to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Moses was born to be the deliverer, drawn out of the water, just as Jesus was born to be our Savior and to deliver us from sin into forgiveness and from death into the promise of life. Moses was born a baby under tyranny, under oppression. His own life was on the line, but because of the fear of God and the faith of the women, his life was spared. His life was saved so that he 
to move forward in this plan of redemption. Just as Jesus, our own Savior and Lord, was born under the tyranny of Herod, who also sought to kill the male babies born under two, his escape and his deliverance took him to Egypt, where he would come forth to become our deliverer. Moses was born with a foot in two worlds, half Egyptian, half Israelite kind of living, straddling between these two worlds so he could be the bridge between the two to draw his people into deliverance. Our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was born to bridge heaven and earth, and yet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully human, the only one qualified, the only one able to pay the price for our sins and to lead us into the glory of God. Moses, in his own time, in his own way, as we will discover in the weeks to come, embraces his role as deliverer, but kind of short circuits and thwarts the plan of God, which leads to his own exodus into the desert where he will be prepared for 40 years until he is ready to be called and brought forth again. Our own Lord Jesus embraces his calling to be Savior and the sacrifice for our sins, and he willingly goes into the desert where it only took him 40 days to be prepared for his launch into ministry. Moses, when the time was right, when the time was fulfilled, went with signs and wonders to Pharaoh. And finally, the sign came of the Passover. And on that night, just as so many years before, the Egyptians took the lives of the children of the people of the promise. The promise went forth from God. If I do not see the sign of blood on the doorposts of the home, if I do not see that the price has already been paid at the cost of the lives of the lambs that you slay, that death will visit upon this home. A means of grace was already given as the angel of death passed over. And wherever that sign was seen, though, grace and forgiveness and life was extended Moses then went forth and led the people to the edge of the Red Sea and stretched forth his hand where God blew the waters and moved them aside and the people were drawn into the new beginning, their exodus into freedom and promise. And so our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on the night when the people of God came together to celebrate and to remember this memorial dinner of the Passover blessing, he took the bread and he lifted it up and he broke it and he said, this bread is now my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up saying, this cup is now the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood that is shed for your sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus went forth from that supper to a garden to pray where he was then betrayed and he was then led to a cross where he was crucified and he died as the final sacrifice, the Passover lamb. And his blood painted the doorposts of that cross which wins for us entrance into eternity and the forgiveness of our sins and life forever with him. And so Jesus invites the people of God to come and to celebrate and to remember this memorial feast, this communion that we come together, this Eucharist, this giving of thanks for the sacrifice of God and his Savior and our Savior, his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as a way to declare and to profess his saving death until he comes again 
And so, people of God, I invite you to come and to feast at this table. Will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our Passover. Our Passover and into the promise of life forever with you and the forgiveness that we have won on the cross as an atoning sacrifice by your Son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so now with appetites whetted, eager to touch and to taste and to know again your goodness and your grace and the life and the promise that you invite us into, we come together now as your body, your people, to remember this sacrifice that wins for us life eternal in this table prepared. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.